Church, you can have a seat. Amen. Good morning. Your Christmas sweaters, they look so festive. Not one of them is ugly. I'm just so sad I forgot to wear mine. This is my mom's Christmas sweater from 1991, and it says that Noah's Ark was a part of Christmas, because there are two reindeer making their way to the Ark. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> it is wool, and it's really hot. I'll just make that disclaimer. <laughs> Uh, we are in a third week of Advent this morning. We are working our way through the Christmas story, noticing some things that we often overlook or have grown so familiar with that we've stopped seeing the beautiful mystery throughout this completely miraculous and often very odd story. As our preaching team was preparing for this series to kick off, we were exchanging stories about odd things that we grew up doing with our families around the holidays. And I shared that every year, my mom hides a pickle in the tree. Whoever finds the pickle gets some cash. And she has like a bajillion ornaments in her tree. She's one of those. Like you could hide a basketball in there and it would take you a while to find it. Her tree is like immaculate. Um, but Jonathan brought that up a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was the family he was talking about when he brought that up. And uh, it sounds like that I'm not the only family that does this. Because some of you guys, when asked, raised your hand that you did it yourselves or you've heard of it before at least, right? Who is familiar with the pickle thing? Okay, so yeah. Well, we were laughing the next day in the office that maybe it's not as odd as we thought it was. Because so many of you have raised your hands. And Jonathan said in that moment, he was like, I still just, I, it's so weird. Like, I don't understand why you do that. That's really strange. And something occurred to me in that moment. I said, Jonathan, I realize I am only ever referring to it as a pickle or the pickle. But you do know, I mean like an ornament of a pickle, right? Like not a real pickle. And he thought we were talking about real pickles, you guys. That would be really weird. And it would smell really bad. I don't know if this makes it any less odd, but I'm talking about a pickle ornament, right? Is that what you guys are talking about when you raised your hands? Okay. Pickle ornament. Yes, so be sure to bring an ornament between now and Christmas Eve and hang it on the tree. And on Christmas Eve, you're welcome to take one back home with you and exchange it. Now, I may or may not have hung 40 pickles on that tree this morning. So if you're lucky, you can get a pickle ornament. I apologize though, none of these come with cash, so uh, you'll just have to take the ornament, it's sentimental value. We're going to engage with a part of the Christmas story this morning that's not usually considered the actual Christmas story, because it occurs about a year before the birth of Jesus, but it's still very intimately connected to Jesus' birth and to us, and it is very odd. We're going to take a look at Zechariah. He's married to Elizabeth, and they are John the Baptist's parents. Elizabeth, if you'll remember, was pregnant with John at the same time that Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And then John prepares the way for Jesus just ahead of his formal ministry. But if you're familiar with the story of Zechariah at all, you may remember that when an angel came to him to announce the birth of his son, John the Baptist, and the coming birth of Jesus the Messiah that Zechariah doubted that proclamation. 
So the angel struck him silent for the duration of his wife's pregnancy, which seems super harsh and very odd to me. In the backdrop of this scene where the angel Gabriel shows up to talk to Zachariah just adds to this incredibly odd and miraculous moment. So let's take a look at the story. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of that word. I'm not going to try to say it this hour. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to, to conceive. And they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So immediately, I like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Don't you? They were righteous in the sight of God following him blamelessly. Zechariah was a priest serving in the temple. They were childless and in their old age. I don't know about you, but I just have immediate compassion for these two. What's wild about this story and detail about Zechariah is that this chosen by lot thing that allows him to go into the temple and burn incense, it's a really big deal. Three priests would be chosen to serve together for each daily sacrifice, morning and evening. Zechariah was given the incense duty. The other two priests, also chosen by Lot, would walk up to the temple with Zechariah, one on each side, and they would enter the holy place together. One priest would set burning coals on the altar. The other priest would arrange the incense so that everything was ready to go for Zechariah. Then those two priests would leave the temple and the incense priest, Zechariah, would be left there alone at the altar. Now just behind the altar was the huge thick curtain. Behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. No man could ever enter beyond that curtain except the high priest. And he could only do so on the Day of Atonement. So the people outside waiting would see these two priests emerge and they would know the time to offer the incense had come. And this was a really important moment for them. Because as commoners, they would never get the chance to go inside the temple. The priests had to do that for them. So they would bow or kneel before the Lord, and they would wait in silence for Zechariah to burn the incense, which signified a prayer that he would lift up to God on behalf of all of these people. And they were outside because they could never enter that holy place. So there was great anticipation for this group of people to wait for that incense priest to finally emerge. That would assure everyone that he wasn't struck dead in the presence of God because they kind of expected that sometimes. And that his prayer on all of their behalves had been heard by God. So it's a really big deal. But get this. There were so many priests at that time that they would cast lots to see which priest would perform this special duty that would get you as close to the Holy Holies that any non-high priest could ever get. 
And because there were so many priests, having your name drawn, so to speak, would likely only happen once in your lifetime. So to a godly man like Zechariah, this was probably the biggest event of his life. A tremendous privilege. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Surely, as he prepared for this moment, he wondered what it would be like to enter the holy place and if God had something special to speak to him. So picture Zechariah, this faithful man of God, standing in a once-in-a-lifetime moment to get as close to God as he could ever possibly get. The other two priests have left. He knows what he's supposed to do. He lights the incense, and he offers up a prayer to God. I wonder what he prayed about. Whatever his prayer was, it was interrupted. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. That seems really harsh to me. This is like the happiest day of this man's life. His name was drawn. He's a godly man. He had prayed for so long for a son and had gotten so old with the prayer going unanswered when an angel shows up at this already insanely heightened moment. And he just shows a need for some assurance, something to help him trust this is actually happening to him. I feel like he had reason to doubt this announcement, even if it was just for a moment. And then this amazing priestly honor of being asked to be the one to go inside the temple and burn the incense, it's totally overshadowed by the fact that Zechariah can now no longer speak. The crowd's waiting outside for him to come back out and give them some inspiring word given to him while he was in there. I mean, I would be like, seriously, God? Why are you messing with me right in the middle of this moment that was already a really big moment in my life? Why do you have to crash the party and talk to me about one of the deepest, most vulnerable places of longing that I've had in my life? And I don't get one moment to not respond well? God, could we have done this tomorrow? This poor guy, he just asked for a sign something to confirm this thing that he had prayed for for so long was really happening. I don't know about you, but when I'm in that place of having asked something of God for a really long time and there doesn't seem to be an answer, I sometimes begin to doubt. I doubt the love and care of God and the details of my life. Zechariah expresses suspicion and confusion in this moment. 
that God is speaking to him. So he asks for a sign. Can you all relate to that? Have you ever done that? Just give me a sign. I know I have. God gave him a sign all right. Struck him silent. This is so odd to me. But the sign God gave, Zachariah's inability to speak, served to heighten the mystery and wonder and miracle of what God was doing. The nature of God is that he loves to speak to his children. The nature of God is that he loves to speak to his children. Do you know anyone who talks like they hear from God on a regular basis? They're like, yeah, this morning when I was praying, God just said to me, or the Lord just spoke, and they say stuff like that all the time. Does that frustrate you sometimes? I sometimes can find myself suspicious of people who talk like that, and that makes me really sad. Why are we suspicious of God speaking to us? Do you know that the average human speaks an average of 15,700 words a day? That's a lot of words. Some of you are like, yeah, I have above average humans in my house. That's nothing. God created us. He created us with mouths to speak and ears to hear. He created the idea of a relationship where we talk to others and they talk back and we grow in intimacy with each other. That is God's idea. The basis of every healthy relationship is communication, talking to each other. This is also true of our relationship with God. People are meant to live in an ongoing conversation with God, speaking and being spoken to. God's visits to Adam and Eve in the garden, face-to-face -face conversations between Moses and God, these are often regarded as highly exceptional moments. They are not meant to be exceptional at all. They're examples of the normal human life that God intended us. Why would we doubt that God who created mouths, ears, words, listening, would not want to speak to us on a regular basis and would not long for us to speak back? Maybe some don't feel the freedom to approach God. Maybe you feel like, I can't just barge into the presence of God and talk to him. Those people outside the temple, waiting outside, when Zechariah went inside, I bet they felt that way. They were told they weren't worthy to go inside closer to God's presence, to speak to them themselves. They were told they needed someone to do that for them, someone who was holier. And there was that big heavy curtain inside the altar where Zechariah burned the incense, and he wasn't even allowed to go beyond that curtain. Only the high priest. Jesus changed all of that. 30-something years after this moment that Zechariah had standing by that curtain, Jesus died on the cross, and at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God's people no longer have to go through someone else who was considered more holy to talk to him. 
What about hearing from God? Maybe you're open to the thought that God wants to speak to you. But gosh, learning to hear his voice, that, that feels like a lifelong journey. It's definitely been that way for me. For me, it starts with practicing time with God where I just don't speak. Sometimes we can be like Zachariah and that our words manifest our own limits. It's good to learn to practice moments of silence with God. I do find that pretty difficult. I hope I'm not the only one whose mind goes everywhere else but God when I try to do that. We can hear God more clearly when we can practice moments of quieting our minds. And I'm learning that. And if I keep practicing it, I find that I get better at it. What about moments like this? What about when you've actually quieted your mind? You've talked to God about something you're looking for his leading on, and you're listening, and then you have a thought. And for a second, you think that thought is God saying something to you. But then you immediately dismiss it as your own thought. Do you ever do that? That was just me. That's not God. That's just my own thoughts. That's something I'm manifesting. I just, I just want it. So we write off the thought we just had as our own, and we are frustrated that God isn't speaking and I think we find ourselves right there with Zechariah. And I want to clarify something about Zechariah and about us that I think is a really important paradigm shift for us to consider if we want to develop this ability to talk to and hear from our Creator. And it's a paradigm shift. You ready? The problem is not that God isn't speaking or even that you aren't hearing. I'm going to repeat that. The problem is not that God isn't speaking or even that you aren't hearing. It's that you don't believe you're hearing. The nature of God is that God loves to speak to his children. So is the problem that God isn't speaking to you? Probably not. You're probably actually hearing God speak. You just don't believe you are hearing from God. We want to sign some assurance because we're suspicious or confused. And the presence of those things immediately makes us think this can't be God's voice. We make this hard because we want proof that what we heard is really God. We may mistakenly think that if God spoke to us, we would automatically know who is speaking without having to learn. That's a mistake, and it's one of the most harmful mistakes for those trying to hear God's voice. It makes sense to me that we would think this way. Like, if God was really speaking to me, I would automatically know. So if I'm doubting, then it must not be God. That's just not true. Being uncertain doesn't mean you haven't heard God speak. It's so hard to be sure of things concerning our faith. Don't we all crave certainty, assurance, confirmation? Don't we all just want a tangible sign so that we can let go of our fear of the unknown? Like, I feel like an angel visit would hit that target for me, but I don't know, it didn't help Zachariah, so I'm a little uncertain. Maybe what was necessary for him 
with some forced silence in order to really ponder and reflect on the powerful message brought to him by Gabriel. There's this beautiful story of God's voice in 1 Kings, it's chapter 19. I encourage you to go read it for yourself sometime this week. But the short of it is Elijah is running for his life. People want him dead. He doesn't see a way out, so he comes like to the end of himself. He gives up. He actually prays that he could just die. He's spending the night in a cave in the wilderness. He's on the run, and God speaks to him. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And what follows this are very clear and specific directions for Elijah, spoken to him by God through this gentle whisper. Author Dallas Willard says, this places the emphasis on the unobtrusiveness of the medium through which the message comes. Messages from God can be seemingly unremarkable, inconspicuous, unassuming, and perhaps not easily noticed. The medium through which the message comes can be diminished almost to the vanishing point, taking the form of thoughts that are our thoughts, though these thoughts are not from us. God's spiritual invasions into human life seem by their very gentleness to invite us to explain them away. So how do we hone this skill of recognizing God's voice? Is it a booming voice, a clear command? Is it a gentle whisper, a fleeting thought? How do we learn to recognize him? The answer to that question is by experience. Hearing from God is something that you learn over time through experience. Just like Zechariah, all significant life skills that are valuable require repeated practice. Why would it be any different learning to hear God's voice? Be kind and patient with your own heart as you learn to hear from God. Be curious, not harsh. Give it time. Consider what's in your story that makes you have a hard time hearing from God. Consider what's in your story that makes you have a hard time believing that it even is his voice you're hearing. Begin that journey. Don't give up on it. Take seriously Jesus' words from the gospel that he has sent you the spirit of truth to help you 
And that spirit is with you forever. You are in him, and his spirit is in you. Do you believe that? Sometimes God speaks in big, mighty ways or in undeniable coincidences. Sometimes we are spoken to by God through our own thoughts, a gentle whisper that we could easily explain away. Practice listening. Start small. Ask simple questions like, what would you like to say to me today? And let God answer simply and build on these small interactions. It wasn't that Zachariah didn't want to believe this message from the angel Gabriel. I imagine he did very much want to believe it. I bet it just felt too good to be true. I bet he'd probably done what you and I do after long seasons of unanswered prayers and just protected himself from disappointment by not letting his expectations get too high. Like it probably felt safer to Zechariah to just explain this angel visit away, to entertain the thought that he needs more proof. Do we rob ourselves of miracles when we take on that attitude? We're all like Zechariah in the temple. Zechariah's unbelief did not make God take his promise back. It just kept Zechariah from enjoying it. God does not stand still when we come to a standstill. When we don't believe God's promise for our lives, we don't necessarily destroy the promise, but we can destroy our ability to enjoy the promise. What made this such severe punishment was that Zechariah had such good news to tell. When he's finally allowed to speak again, when Elizabeth gives birth to John nine months later, the floodgate is opened and he bursts into song. His words pour out in praise of God's mercy and faithfulness. And then he tenderly takes his newborn son in his arms and he sings a prophecy over him. He literally breaks out into song over his son. I just love that. Zechariah came to know his father's voice. He learned how to trust it, and he would be much more attuned at hearing God speak the next time. Every one of us has a hidden side of our being that is in touch with God. We are in a close connection with the eternal truth and love, even if we're not aware of it. And from this hidden side of our being resounds a voice that is actually speaking to us constantly. We may never see angels while we're kneeling at the altar, but the wind of God can rejuvenate and fill our spirits. The earthquake of God can shake us out of our complacency. The fire of God can catch us ablaze. We need only offer our dry bones. The whisper of God can be heard by our ears and felt in our hearts. God's thoughts are over us and in us and all around us, and they are leading us as he is always speaking to us. Isn't that so very odd and so completely miraculous? Would you pray with me? Father God, would you help us to see that you have created us to speak to you and you have created us to hear from you. 
would you give us the courage to believe what you say to us? In Jesus' name.